According to the NHS, anorexia nervosa is responsible for more life loss than any other mental health condition. Eating disorders are very common in today's society, and in this podcast series I focus on media's responsibility towards these statistics, and especially in regards to body image and appearance. But it's important to remember that there are other reasons behind these illnesses. Today, I have invited Alice Levitin to share her story. She suffered from anorexia a few years ago, but when I met her to take photos of her, she said that it had nothing to do with appearance. It was a coping mechanism she used to deal with the trauma she had experienced. We will talk openly about not just the illness itself, but also about losing family members and sexual assaults. And I therefore want to give you a trigger warning. If these topics make you feel uncomfortable, you could turn off right after Alice has introduced herself and the project she's working on. My aim with this episode is to spread awareness of anorexia, to prevent more people from getting it, and to help people who are related to anyone who suffers. I really admire Alice for speaking so openly about her own experience. And I think she will help a lot of you listeners by realising that you are not alone, either if you are struggling yourself or if you know anyone who is. If you need help or want to learn more about different kinds of eating disorders, you can visit Beat's website. There's a link in the show notes of this episode to their website. I hope you are in a comfortable and safe place now and ready to listen to Alice's wisdom. My name is Fanny Beckman, and this is Women of My Generation. clearly when I first exhibited um, Women of My Generation at the Dome and I overheard a group of older women saying that oh, there was one particular photo that I really liked and it was the one with the cat sitting on the bed um, and here you are, Alice. Hello, Hello. how are Women you today? The cat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, good, I'm really excited be on a podcast. Yeah, you're actually my first guest up here in London, which is really exciting. Um, But you're obviously much more than a crazy cat lady. Yeah. You're also (laughs) an ugly girl, Mm -hmm. and there's obviously a big reason that I say that, so Mm. would you like to explain why you call yourself an ugly girl? Yeah, I think uh, I, I was always the girl that kind of didn't think I needed feminism. I think that's how I grew up. I was mm-hmm. a bit like, I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it. And I think I was like, well, I was raised, you know, my parents were quite open and accepting. And I was like, I've always been treated fine. Mm-hmm. And the word ugly 
was like really what brought me to it. It just made me understand straight away the idea that ugly could be the worst thing that someone could call me. Mm. And the idea that I had to try and not be that. Mm. And really when I when I sort of picked the word apart, I was like, but I am and I'm allowed to be mm. and that's cool. Mm. And then when you get further into it, there are things that I thought were ugly about myself that people really liked or there are parts of other people that I loved and admired, parts yeah. of their body that they thought were horrendous. Mm. I was like, mm. what even is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it's so subjective, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like, and I think I'd spent, so, you know, spent all of my teenage years worrying about what I looked like and mm. what other people thought I looked like mm. and I think giving into that word and allowing it to be subjective and allowing myself to not have to fall into any sort of my own vision of pretty, yeah. I guess, um, mm. really empowered me and made me think back on actually how my life had been defined by the standards that were put on me because I'm a woman. Mm. Mm. And then it clicked. I was like, God, I do need feminism. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. this is important. And if I, as quite a privileged white woman, really sat there and thought, oh, I really need this. Like, mm. this has actually really been quite defining of me up until this point, mm. then there are a lot of women everywhere that need it way more than I do. And yeah. I'm like, I can contribute to that. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it really sort of ended up being the thing that gave me a lot of purpose. Do you remember what age you were in when you realised that you were a feminist? I, I mean, it was... It was... I was maybe 21, mm. 22, mm. like very late yeah, today. Yeah. <laughs> but I was I I was raised in a small farming village mm. uh, in the Midlands and I was exposed to a lot of what I guess those people would define as sort of casual racism and like mm. casual homo and like okay. banter and mm. like casual misogyny yeah, <laughs> like yeah. that I was just yeah. exposed to that and after then moving to Brighton and seeing how different the world can work mm. not even too far away from yeah. um I really started to unpick all of that mm. and realized how ingrained my own misogyny was yeah uh and yeah. Mm. And today you do loads of like feminist activism and to do things to question the patriarchal structures. Yeah, it's um, like my whole work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is insane. I'm only 26, so yeah, it's yeah. quite a new thing, but. It's four or five years. Yeah. Mm. And I just have found such a home within the movement, I mm. guess. Mm. And I feel quite safe with it and I really feel I feel like the something that's happened in fem feminism 
fairly recently, like in the fourth wave, mm. is realising just how much it intersects with. Yeah. Um, and I really love actually Hermione, who's been on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's like her revival collective, and it's mm. like fashion is a feminist issue. Yeah. And of course it is. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, it is. And the mm. more you, you know, the more you go down it, you think anything I've ever questioned or anything I've ever known to be oppressive mm. for other people, not just myself, other communities, mm. always ends up back intersecting with feminism. Yeah. Which, I mean, men's mental health mm. is campaign for mm. alongside the feminist yeah. movement. Yeah. Like it's, so I think we're coming a really long way in a really productive way in actually being able to like make some real changes. Mm. Yeah, for everyone. Yeah, I definitely agree. And you, for example, you want you run now the Clapback Club, which yes. is a theatre group. Yeah. Um, can you please tell us a bit about it? Yeah. So we um, we met through Fringe Fit. There's a group of eight of us. Mm-hmm. So we all co-founded Clapback Club together. Yeah. Um, I'm the producer because I don't have any. Performing talent, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we we we're we're, we're a creative group. We're mm-hmm. all from different backgrounds, um, professions, but we really sort of bonded on this idea that the the way we could get through to people um, is through comedy yeah <laughs> so we sort of a, we're a comedy musical theatre group mm-hmm. and a feminist collective mm. so one part of clapback club is that we do fringe theatre every year yeah. award-winning award-winning yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um we uh currently do a show called in loving memory of patriarchy mm. which is a funeral for the patriarchy yeah. uh and it's we've just found what an amazing gateway it's been into having really difficult conversations. Yeah. We don't hold back whatsoever mm. on what we talk about and we're really not afraid to make a room feel uncomfortable and sit with um those feelings that aren't nice to mm. sit with mm. Mm. but then bring them back up again. Yeah. Uh and I think We've just found the magic in in how to get our message across. We talk mm-hmm. a lot about uh, sexual assault, sexual abuse, and we put a lot of our own selves out there mm-hmm. in our shows. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, things can get quite close to home, but then because we're such a tight group, mm-hmm. we feel so supported in that. Yeah. And we feel able to make each other laugh. Mm. Um, How is that to perform to others then? It's It's hard. I mean, the performing, perhaps... Well, I mean, I couldn't really speak on it because I don't perform it. But Mm. the the shows are always really brilliant because you're getting the reaction. Mm. It's the rehearsals. Mm. We write everything ourselves collectively. So... The writing is always really great because we have amazing conversations and we always learn so much. Mm. Like 
we are not the feminist collective that are going to tell you we know what we're talking about. Because, okay. you know, it's... I mean, we... Uh, we covered a lot of sort of like the history of feminism last mm-hmm. year in our mm-hmm. show and a lot of that came from us having to Google it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's amazing that you learn something as well. And yeah, yeah so it's lot. been yeah. great. And then, again, that gives us a platform with our audiences mm. to educate mm. in a completely non-patronising yeah, way. Yeah, because we're sure. like, hey, we just found this out. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, so we really do come from quite a personal close to home yeah and and like researching through our friends mm. and through our communities and yeah. um, so it can be tough but then I think it really does speak to the power of like having your support system and yeah. your group because yeah. no one has ever found it too much because we've always had each other mm. Um, and we and well the other part of Clapback is that uh, we work in sort of community outreach Mm -hmm. so uh, we in back in the summer we founded um, Home Safe Brighton which was actually off the back of uh, one of our members being assaulted on her way home from our rap party (laughs) Where we were oh, celebrating, really? yeah. we um we went to karaoke to mm. celebrate winning our second audience choice award. Yes, um, <laughs> and she she walked home by herself, which should be fine. Yeah, of course, just to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, she was insul- assaulted on her doorstep. So that and, is horrible. Yeah, just absolutely safe space. Um, Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. and she, we encouraged her to report it. She didn't have the best experience mm-hmm. with the sort of reporting process. Mm-hmm. So we had a little bit of a group meeting and we're like, we've got to do something. Yeah. And we sort of took the framework from like the body system. Mm-hmm. So we patrol at night in high vis with a little sign saying, come and chat to us if mm. someone's making you feel uncomfortable we can walk you to a taxi we can walk you to a bus we always go in pairs mm. uh, and we're really well supported by uh, Brighton and Hove Council mm. and uh, the police yeah, so yeah. we're quite safe yeah. um, and we're expanding into developing uh, some sort of creative schemes for local women's centres mm. and LGBTQ support services. So, um, yeah, that's incredible. And you also yeah. got some attention from media last summer as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, Home Safe sort of... Because we did it around the time that there was a really... It, it felt like an epidemic yeah, of sexual abuse mm-hmm. cases in Brighton. Yeah. It was. It just felt like it was every week. Yeah. And it was, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so because we developed our response at that time, we ended up um, being the feature story on 
BBC Six O'Clock News and mm. ITV mm. Meridian News, mm. which was really raising awareness, but also a call for action of mm. like, why are these targeted sexual assaults yeah. happening? Mm. When we look into that a little bit more, we need to develop a response. Mm. There needs we we were calling what we were doing. Uh, like social action so mm. there does need to be sort of a community response to mm. what's going on mm. but at the same time what Home Safe highlighted was that while while we were willing and available to put ourselves out there at night time mm. there's a hell of a lot of training and safeguarding needs going into that yeah. and there are a lot of people working in a lot of services who have that training and safeguarding mm. And I'm just not sure that there's enough support being delegated mm. towards supporting people who are being abused. Dome- like domestic abuse, it's been going on for years. Yeah, yeah. Like, like as in, like not behind closed doors, or it's not mm. something people don't talk about. Mm. Like. It's people that people like openly joke about, like all yeah. like bad wife syndrome, mm. yeah. like mm. and like I've been um, I've been working with Rise UK a fair mm. bit, uh, and I've done some training with them, and the way that that sector is still being neglected and not treated properly mm. is insane. Yeah. So, and it just it, it's quite overwhelming. It feels like a bit of a minefield yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um again, there's so many prejudices against like domestic abuse it only happens to certain people mm-hmm. and it's typical victim perpetrator but that's not the case yeah. at all well it's like the perfect victim and i mm. think you um something i always think is when when people think of a rapist mm. which a lot of people are a lot of people are re- are reluctant to say that mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like but when you think of a rapist I envision like uh what's the film The Lovely Bones have you seen, no, it? I haven't seen it and it's sort of this sort of like older guy with like the big rim glasses and mm. like an anorak and it's like kind of creepy like that's like the profile mm. that has been given yeah, to sure. us and it it like, while that is one mm. way for a rapist to mm. look, it mm. can also look like the 15-year-old mm. lad on his bike. Yeah, exactly. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, and exactly. I think the media has given us such a narrow perception of mm. what, what to look out for yeah. and that rapists hang out in alleyways. Mm-hmm. But then also that victims are, like, we're damsels and yeah. we're... Um, we're dressed a certain way mm, and, mm. and that's a massive it, problem in court as well that uh, victim blaming mm-hmm. it's so bad victim blaming is i think one of the most ingrained one of one of the like bits of the patriarchy that is most ingrained i yeah. think into everyone mm. because that why don't you leave question mm. is Everyone will think it. Mm. Like, I've experienced friends going through really awful 
abusive relationships. Mm. And because I love them and I find it so frustrating mm. that they that they're in that situation and mm. they're being treated that way, I will often find myself, oh, why can't she just get out of it? Yeah, yeah. you know. Mm. Um, and we really, really need to check ourselves a lot more. I yeah. think when we're because you're a you know. I allow, I'm allowed to be frustrated mm. that people I love are in that situation, mm. but it isn't their fault. No, exactly. They didn't ask for that situation. Mm. They didn't put themselves in that situation no. and they're not keeping themselves in that situation. No, so, yeah. yeah. That's why it's really important to talk about these kind of things in the media and uh, I'm sorry, like the BBC, um, mm. how like, what you d- were doing as well. Um, but obviously you have a lot of things going on, uh, lots of very interesting projects. Mm. And when we met, um, when I took photos of you, it was actually like nearly a year ago now. Yeah. Yeah, it's mad. Um, but you told me that you want to start an organisation um, to help young people who are grieving. Mm. Is that still something that you want to go ahead with? Or? It is. And it's... I'm sort of at that point where it's like, how will this manifest? Mm-hmm. Because it was, I think at the time we spoke to it, I mm. wanted it to be like a website and a forum because what one of the things, um, so my dad died two and a half years ago when I was 24. Mm. Um, and my mum died 10 years before that when I was 14. So, uh, I'm pretty, pretty experienced in the, yeah. <laughs> in the grief mm. department. Mm. Uh, but with my dad's death specifically, I was completely responsible for that admin. Like the sheer amount <laughs> of yeah. admin yeah. that comes with it, and oh, I, I, I wasn't really grieving because I was so busy. Mm doing admin yeah. <laughs> like, don't talk about that oh my god we mm. didn't like mm. i i thought i knew it all like yeah you write a will mm. you get a solicitor like mm. no 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 like it's it's insane mm. um it, it took over my life mm. for a good year and a half and i just remember googling like when i was confused about something mm. I would Google it. And the only real information out there for the whole process of probate and death certificates and blah, blah, is um is age UK. Mm-hmm. And it's geared towards older people yeah, yeah, yeah. whose maybe their husband has died. Mm-hmm. Um, well, anyone really, like mm-hmm. a partner, but, you know, age UK are geared towards... An older yeah, audience, yeah. and all of the information is with the complete assumption that one, you know anything about the person's financial situation. Mm. Like it was just sort of assumed that I knew who my dad paid his gas bill with. Yeah, like yeah. I hadn't lived with him for six years, mm. maybe more. Mm. It's also under the assumption that you just know how to appoint a solicitor. Yeah, like. Mm. there's no section like how to it's it's like appoint a solicitor and then yeah yeah so it's just the information I was finding really isn't geared towards 
a 24-year-old. Yeah. Even, like, language-wise, it can be really difficult to read and understand. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah like, legal. They're like, um, sometimes you'll just read when you've got probate. But how do I get it? Yeah. What is it? Mm, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's so incredibly confusing yeah. that I really... And every time I've spoken about it, um, I post quite a lot on my, just on my personal Instagram mm. about... Uh, the process and people do find it so useful mm. just to know how these things work yeah. and to know that two and a half years on I still get letters that I'm in debt to someone mm. <laughs> because they overpaid my dead dad some sort of oh insurance like mm. it's it's kind of never ending and I think there's not a lot you can do about it mm. there's nothing I can do to make it better for anyone no, or no. make it not be a thing or really even change how that whole system works mm. um but I think to be to be able to be prepared mm. for it and and know a little bit about the steps and what yeah. it all entails would have been so handy for me and that's what you want to the forum. Yeah, that's what I want to create. I just, mm. it's it's almost like the practical stuff. When you're grieving, especially when you're in immediate grief, mm. you're not thinking straight. Like, no. and and you're having to make some of the biggest decisions of your life, yeah. and by far the most amount of admin you'll ever have. Mm. I was calling it dadmin after it. Yeah. I was like, I'm doing dadmin. Like, it's. Just, at 24 as At well. 24. Mm. And while that's... While that is slightly uncommon that someone at 24 wouldn't have either mm. of their parents, it's not that no. uncommon that there shouldn't be... I have be. two friends, other friends, who's in the same situation yeah, as well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I felt... I'd always been in, like, the dead parent club since I was 14, mm. so I felt very, like safe in that mm-hmm. when I got into the two dead parent club mm-hmm. it was thinning out the amount yeah, of people yeah. I was meeting mm. but still very common thing yeah. to happen mm. and I guess the trouble the thing about being in your 20s mm. is that you're not legally or socially considered an orphan that needs help no, no, no. <laughs> you know you're not um you're no, too old for that. Yeah, and too young to you're look too old for that. Yeah, mm. too young to sort of have any idea, and especially like the generation we're in now. Mm. Like, I don't understand about stocks and shares and things mm. that like my sixty-year-old dad had in order mm. because he should have maybe at that age. And yeah. his generation, people were a lot more like. Mm. Well, they just had better opportunities, let's say. <laughs> but yeah, it's it it I just found myself in this weird limbo mm. of I wasn't young enough to receive that much help. No. But I wasn't old enough to know what the hell was going on yeah, and what yeah. really to do. Mm. So that is that is on my it's it's constantly in my thoughts of how I, okay. how I can communicate that mm. concisely mm. and helpfully without 
overwhelming people with information and that may well take for me to get a little bit further down my own grieving process Mm. so that actually it doesn't feel overwhelming to me because sometimes writing that whole process Mm. down is like it's like PTSD it's like Mm. reliving it (laughs) so Mm. oh it's a project that I will constantly work on and as I as my mental health gets better and as I feel a little bit more resolved Mm. it will fall into place Mm. and I'm and I'm really excited for for like what form that will take because yeah, yeah. I think it's so important mm, definitely and like you said it's really important to let yourself grieve as well and you haven't had a chance to do that and uh, when we met uh, before you told me that you developed different coping mechanisms first when your mum died when you were 14 um, that wasn't helpful for you in the long run it was probably helpful for you at the time, at the time yeah. <laughs> um, but could you tell us about that yeah, so my my mum was diagnosed with thyroid cancer when I was 12, mm. and she died when I was 14, mm. which is a really annoying age, <laughs> because it, it sort of like defined me then, mm. like I think 12 to 14, you have no idea who you are, mm. and you're finding that out then, or you're at least, you're sort of building, like, the blocks Mm. of what you might be like as a person. Yeah. Uh, And for me, that whole period was defined by my mum dying Mm. or being ill. And in some respects, I found her being ill worse than her dying because she was... You know, she really suffered. Mm. Um, I don't know what, like, I don't know what you define as, like, okay cancer, but she had, like, not okay cancer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, her treatment, it, mm. was, it was it was hard to sort of live with and be around. Mm. And, um, yeah, as a response to that, I uh, developed anorexia. Mm. Um, but you said that um, it had nothing to do with appearance. No. It was... A coping mechanism. Yeah, and to be honest, I, when I think back on it, I I can't really think sort of when it started and when it ended, mm. and I've done a lot of analysing of it over the years, so now I'm at a point where I can talk about it mm. um, and understand it, but at the time, it was just, I didn't even really think about it. No. But, so, I, um, I never had body dysmorphia, essentially. Um, I, but then I will say it was somewhat attached to appearance in that I was always, um, slim. Mm. Um, like, I've always had, like, especially when I was a kid, I was just tiny, like, really tiny frame. And people would comment on that all the time. Mm. Like, especially, you know, 12, you go into secondary school. Mm. And I wasn't, like, super popular. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't super confident. Mm -hmm. 
uh, when I first started school and the one thing that people would always know me for, mm. they'd pay attention to me because I was skinny. Mm. And it wasn't nice attention, mm. but for a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, mm. it was attention. Mm. So to the point where there was there was there was boys in older years to me and they would call me Anna and it used to really upset me because I was like, they don't know my name. Mm. <laughs> like that's how that made me feel. I was like, they they just don't even know no. who I am mm. and that made me feel horrible mm. on top of what I was going through with my mum. Yeah, and just being a hormonal teenager who wants mm. attention. It's tough anyway. Yeah. Mm. Um and it wasn't for a really long time that I realised they were calling me Anna, like, as short for anorexic. Oh, like, they had no. nicknamed me. And I didn't have an eating disorder at this point. No. But I, I, I was so socialised, like, my environment. Mm. Everyone felt like they had claimed to talk about my body. Mm. Like, it was just their right. Mm. It was their right to nickname me... Mm. Anna, <laughs> like, um, and it sort of became my thing. Mm. Like, I know it sounds odd, no, but I was going through such trauma, really, at home. Mm. I didn't know whether I was coming or going. I didn't know who I was, and mm. I so desperately just wanted to be liked and to fit in mm. and to take my mind off what was going on at home and to yeah, make yeah. loads of friends mm. and um that I would have I would have taken any anything from them like mm. I, I never asked them to stop calling me Anna mm. like I essentially took this thing that I felt was me and mine mm. which mm. was being skinny mm. and ran with it mm. <laughs> and I either and then I developed anorexia mm. and it to the point where it nearly kills me, and because you went into hospital. Yeah, I, I mean, I was referred. This was sort of happening as my mum was ill, and after my mum had died, I was then referred to um, a specialist facility for children with eating disorders, which was an in and out patient centre, sort of all in one, and I was offered counselling. Uh, I didn't like my counsellor at all, but that was a, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I was diagnosed then with clinical anorexia. Okay. Which, and this was in 2007, mm. and we've come a long way, and I'm glad, because yeah. essentially what this, what they meant was I was physically anorexic. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense mm -hmm. but I wasn't experiencing body dysmorphia therefore they didn't say I was just anorexic oh, okay oh is that a different treatment then <sighs> I honestly like don't know like mm. I don't I still don't understand it to this day mm. it was you're clinically anorexic meaning mm. I, I mean I was 14 15 years old weighing in at like four stone like I was tiny yeah so it's like yeah well you're starving yourself mm. and 
um, you're tiny. <laughs> like mm. you, like you're really not in a, a good way. Yeah. So you are anorexic, but because it's not because you think you're fat, mm. you're not actually anorexic. Was this sent? Actually, what yeah. I was given. Mm. So they were treating me for weight gain, mm. and when it came to the mental health side of it, mm. they were like, "Oh, well, you're grieving. Your mum's died," and that's kind of where that ended. Yeah, it's so bad. So it's like there should I be was a being big reason for it. Because yeah. <laughs> I mean, lots of people. Have develop eating disorders to kind yeah. of control something they feel right. like they've lost control of mm-hmm. something in their lives and they control food instead and they should know that the clinic right like I have had to figure I've sort of had to figure out these answers for myself as mm. I've got older but in that moment and in my treatment plan as a 14 year old girl um I'm seeing dietitians, nutritionists, I'm being like force fed mm. to get the weight on me because mm. I'm my BMI was I can't tell you how many times that BMI wheel was brought out. Mm. But no one was no one was helping me explore what grief meant. Mm. You know? Mm. It was always just you're grieving. You're mm. grieving. Your mum's mm. died, of course you're ill, of course you're this and no one was really letting me understand that. Mm. So, it, yeah. Because you were so young, you probably didn't understand it yourself. No. And you mentioned earlier that you didn't really know that you had any eating disorder at no. the time. Was it someone else who told you? Was it a family member or friends? Or It's more... I think I just figured... I think it was obvious to me after I'd, and again I couldn't, I couldn't really tell you where the end to it was, but mm. you know I put the weight on and I I left school, which was a big thing because mm. all those people were gone yeah. out of my life. But it was really as I began to recover. And I was able to reflect back that I was like, no, no, that was a that was a, a huge mental health issue mm. because no, I didn't look in the mirror. I looked in the mirror and I was disgusted at how little weight was on me. Mm. Like I was under no illusions for that, mm. but that that is not one way to be anorexic. Mm. Like body dysmorphia is a thing. Mm. Uh, it's not, like, the only mental health issue mm. tied to eating disorders, no. and that's just yeah. how it was viewed, mm. like, mm. At, at that time, which is a shame. And I now know that it was... that There was two layers to it, but one of them was, quite frankly, just self-harm. Like, mm. I, I didn't care. I just didn't care. Mm. Um, I didn't feel any which way, like, need to nourish myself mm. or to feel well. And the the other part of it was the control, like you said. Mm. And the choice, I guess. Mm. I feel like 
every the whole experience with my mum, I had absolutely no choice or control over anything, and I felt quite restricted by that. Mm. And I I distinctly just remember thinking like, oh. I don't have to eat if I don't want to eat. Like, it, it felt liberating, if yeah. that makes any sense, because I had choice. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'd found out that if I just smoked, it would suppress my appetite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, ju- it just made me feel like I had choice and, and like I could choose what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And all these things that society was telling me, like, you have to eat three times a day, you have to brush your teeth, you have Mm. to go to bed, any of that, and, like, you shouldn't smoke too much or drink too much. Mm. I was just going the other way, Mm. and it felt, like, so liberating Mm. to be like, no, I don't have to. I can do what I want, Mm. and because I didn't actually care what happened to me whatsoever, Mm. I had no inhibitions. Mm. I didn't care who around me was affected by my devastation. Yeah. <laughs> um, it it was I loved it. Mm. Obviously, it was awful. Now on reflection, yeah, let's stress that we don't want anyone else to. Yeah, like this. exactly. Mm. At the time, it felt so liberating, and it's like single-handedly the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Mm. Like, it it couldn't... I, I mean, I have long... I have, like, long-lasting health effects from mm. it. Mm. I have chronic pain and illnesses as a result of it. Mm. Um, I, I feel, like, sort of, like, behind in life mm. now. Mm. I'm a 26-year-old woman, but I've spent all of my formative years under the thumb of mm. this horrible thing yeah. that I thought I was completely in control of. Mm. Mm. So the contrast between when I was really in the throes of it, mm. feeling so liberated mm. and needing that element of control, I couldn't have been less in control of no. myself. Yeah, uh, so true. Yeah, and realising that and that a big part of healing was understanding that and having to unpick that myself Mm. because therapists were telling me that mentally I was sound Mm. and normal and fine which Mm. I I, I would argue no one who has an eating disorder could be ticked off as like oh you're fine Mm. your brain's fine it's just your body like that's not how it works but that was how it was presented to me okay so that was fulfilling my that was backing up my own thoughts that I was fine mm. essentially <laughs> okay, and I, th- I think a lot of people who are either related or, or friends with someone who is ill struggle to know what they can say or can they even mention that you lost weight or or what can they do to support someone? It's so... It's really hard to say, and I think it depends, one, on the person, and two, on the relationship mm. you have with them. One of the things that I still can't bear to this day is people asking me if I've eaten. Mm. 
Um, it's just one of those questions that like fills me with anger because it was such a question mm. that was constantly asked to me. Have you eaten? What have you eaten? Oh, okay. Calorie count? Ca- like, mm. have you had enough calories? Mm. Keep a diary of what you've eaten. Like, who, who did ask that? Who asked that? The therapist mm. who then made my family. Uh, so it was like, I felt like I was being grilled on it. Mm. So there are ways that I find easier because people do need to check on in on me that I meet. Mm. Because even though I would say I'm recovered, mm. I recovered from the life-threatening bout of mm. anorexia, which lasted three-ish years. Um, but it's always sort of around. And mm. when my dad was ill, he... Uh, he had cancer for two years as well. Mm. It was very much in the back of my mind, his mind, everyone's minds. Like, this was Alice's coping. Mm. Is it, like... It's going to be the same. Yeah, mm. like, because, well, it's just muscle memory. So, like, yeah. And we all knew that I would have no control over it. Mm. And I, by this point, knew that I wasn't in control of that situation and no longer was I liberated. Mm. Um, uh, my, my best friend, Laura, is the best at it. We mm. lived together when my dad was diagnosed, mm. so she got the real brunt of my the beginning of my grief, I would mm. say, for my dad through the diagnosis. And she will... She will never ask me, have you eaten? And she'll rarely say, what do you fancy? Mm. She'll go, I'm going to have this. Do you want some? Mm. And even if I say no, she'll make it. And I'll always have if that makes okay. sense. Like, she, it, it will never be, it's, I think it's about how you frame it. Mm. This is for me, mm. but I do think across the board it is quite helpful. Mm. I think one of one of one of the difficult things when you have a disorder mm. is like the choice mm. because when I was really in the throes of grieving for my dad if someone gave me the choice do you want to eat I would say no mm. if someone put food you put a bowl of crisps on the table mm. I would pick at it without even thinking mm. So for me, it was about how food was being presented to me and how it was associated, and it could be a social thing. Mm. So we could, you know, we'll just be sat around a table, and if there is food on that table, Mm. I will almost subconsciously eat that food. Mm. If someone says to me... Is that today or at that time as well? In general, today mm-hmm. still, that is how I work better. Yeah. Like, love me some tapas. Because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. just, you know, mm-hmm. a meze. I'm good. Yeah. Love a buffet. Mm-hmm. But certainly, like, when I was really, really, really struggling, I needed it to be treated as casual and as unroutine oh, as okay. it could be. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so I couldn't... And no focus on you. I couldn't focus mm. on have I eaten breakfast, have I mm. eaten lunch, because mm. then that panics me, mm. and then I kind of won't. Mm. It almost has the opposite effect. Yeah. If I'm thinking too routinely, 
But if it's just casually, <laughs> like, put in front of me, I'm made social and not made, like, this extra thing I have to do. Mm. I think that is where the sort of disordered eating has lasted with me is I still struggle to view it as just something that I do or enjoy. Mm. I If I have a lot to do and I feel overwhelmed, it eating is part of that I'm like mm. oh and I've got to find time mm. to cook and like like yeah. I, that that's maybe like where I still struggle a little bit do you have any um what do you do in those situations when you think like that I can you st- take a step back and, and see I can yeah. which again I since my dad died I've been in therapy mm. proper good therapy mm-hmm. that isn't mm. Yeah, you would recommend that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I think now now I'm an now I'm an adult and I'm a, I'm much more self aware and I know myself better. Mm. That has been going into therapy from that mm. has been so helpful. Mm. Going into therapy as a fourteen year old who's completely lost their mind. Mm. <laughs> um, I never felt agency over the experience and I didn't care and I was really disconnected. Whereas this time around, after my dad died, I was like, I am experiencing some relapse behaviours. I knew this would happen. I don't want it to happen. Let me nip it in the bud. (laughs) Um, And with with my therapist, she's been able to sort of train me into looking in on my own mental health Mm. and being inquisitive about Mm. it. Mm. Because I'm so interested in other people and their experiences and their minds and how they work. And I've always been really interested. Mm. So she's helped me turn that background on my own Mm. brain. Yeah. Um, Well, that's great that you found some tools that that you actually yeah. useful in the long run now. I would say that's my biggest mm. tool and I think by just talking about it you've helped a lot of people now um, who can relate to it and, and hopefully find different healthy coping mechanisms for themselves as well definitely I think we, we could sit here and talk forever because there's so much to <laughs> mention for sure um, but unfortunately we have to wrap it up now but um, thank you so much for talk- talking so openly about your own experiences. Oh, that's alright. Thank mm. you for having me. Yeah, of course. <laughs>